Thanks for tuning in for Access U Time. Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's very interesting topic on mindfulness and meditation, some unfinished business from last week. If you recall uh, one of our episodes last week, we talked uh, about a what we uh, uh, dubbed a public lands cooperation success story. Aspen on Monroe Mountain in central Utah were in serious need of restoration. The situation could easily have descended into a blame game with wildlife advocates saying that livestock were eating all the young aspen and grazing advocates saying that wildlife were eating all the young aspen. Instead, all sides launched a project, the Monroe Mountain Working Group. Individuals and groups that in other circumstances might have been fighting came together to solve the problem. We talked with three members of the Monroe Mountain Working Group. And uh, that evening that we uh, aired this uh, program, uh, Tom wrote in. Uh, here's what he says. Interesting Aspen on Monroe story. I had a comment, but decided not to send it in. I wanted the collaborators to get the credit they deserve. So perhaps you would run this postscript tomorrow at the beginning. We didn't get that done the next day, but uh, we'll get Tom's comment in today. Here's what Tom says. I respect that the different interest groups are working successfully together on Monroe Mountain. There is one missing element to their studies. One reason that elk can stay on the burned area and uh, browse down the aspen suckers is that for most of the year, the non-hunting season, there's no motivation for them to leave. The elk's constant grazing must partly block aspen recovery. In areas such as Yellowstone, the wild ungulates are moved around by wolves and can't decimate the emerging aspen suckers, and the aspen are recovering. In areas of the West where the aspen are in decline and are the areas are also big and wild enough, restoration of the wolves should logically help. The livestock interest would oppose this, and perhaps the hunters too, but it is nevertheless true. Without addressing the absence of predators, the picture is incomplete. That's Tom's comment. Thanks for that, Tom. You can reach us always to upraxcess at gmail.com. A while back on Axis Utah, Michael Souter helped us learn some of the history and current practice of yoga. And today on the program, he'll lead us in an exploration of mindfulness and meditation, which may be of special interest during these times of pandemic. Michael Souter is a poet and professor of English at Utah State University and an affiliated faculty member in the Religious Studies and Yoga Studies programs, where he teaches courses in the history and philosophy of yoga. He's the founder of the nonprofit organization Amrita Yoga Satsang, and he's trained as a yoga and meditation teacher in the late 1970s. Teaches yoga, meditation, and their history and philosophy at studios, retreats, and in yoga uh, teacher training programs. Michael Sauter, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good morning. So good. nice of you to have me come back. Good, good to have you on the program. It's uh, sad not to have you in studio, but we're yes. social distancing here, so. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, that's where I want to start. How, just in general, how how are you doing with the with the pandemic and social distancing? Well, uh, I guess it's kind of um, a mixture of things. On the one hand, I'm you know kind of a homebody, and I almost became a yogic monk when I was young, and so uh, so the isolationing part is not so hard for me. Of course, I do have a family who I live with, which helps too. So I mean, that part is just great. You know, I also have a, a salaried position, so, you know, I'm still getting my income, and so I feel a little awkward about that sometimes because I know a lot of people have lost jobs and are unemployed and are, you know, really suffering a lot. We don't have a lot of COVID here in the Valley, 
And, um, you know, so I think it's kind of easy for us to not realize how serious this is and, you know, how much suffering there is for a lot of people. So I have kind of like mixed feelings about it. But overall, I'm just doing very well. Thank no, you. That's good. Yeah, stay safe. Do you still have your kids at home? Yes, they're still at home. They're uh, 14 and 16, so yeah. they won't be home too much longer. But, yep, we're trying to enjoy them as teenagers. Yeah, yeah so <laughs> teenagers. How, <laughs> how are they doing? And, and what are they doing? Uh, let's see. Well, th- it's been a big adjustment, you know, and uh, it's kind of like I read in the New York Times the other day that, you know, in the battle over the screens, the screens have won. You know, so it's like uh, we're always trying to keep our sons off their devices. And in this pandemic, when they're schooling online, it, it kind of does feel like the screens have won in some ways. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's nice we're doing a radio thing. Here. Yeah. Uh, so your wife's a writer. You're a writer uh-huh. and a poet, right? Yes. Um, yes. I, I can, you know, <laughs> uh, in an idealistic, romanticized uh, view, I, I could see you guys sitting home and blissfully writing through the pandemic. Yes, it's really true. We're, we're doing our best to do that. Although, you know, time gets frittered away. You know, Henry David Thoreau said our lives are frittered away in detail. And, uh, you know, it can happen so easily. So we're trying to carve out like three hours a day to do our own creative work and you know, there's always administrative stuff at school to do over email, and, you know, just regular daily activities can pull you away from those kinds of pursuits. Mm. I talked to with, um, uh, this was last week or the week before, I talked to Paisley Rectal, the Utah's Poet Laureate, oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, about the power of poetry during, during especially during these times. I wonder, you're a poet. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Are you are you reading anything special or writing anything special during these times? Uh, let's see. You know, lately I've really been reading a lot in yoga philosophy and philosophies of meditation and mindfulness and writing about that. I'm writing a prose book called Nine Gates to Enlightenment, which is kind of a book on uh, meditation and mindfulness and kind of uh, contemplative life. And so I'm working a lot on that. Um, and then I'm also writing poems that are based on the letters of the Sanskrit language, which is super fun. So those are kind of my two projects right now. But yeah, I do find that that kind of like contemplative, solitary time that you spend writing is also a kind of mindfulness time as well. So, you know, you go inward and you, you know, uh, open up these interior spaces of creativity, which can blossom, hopefully. Open up spaces of creativity, which I imagine, and and the whole practice of mindfulness and meditation, I'm guessing you would say it could help in times of stress, like in any times, but especially in times of stress, like we're going through right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was just thinking about that and thinking that this time in the pandemic and in isolation, <clears throat> you know, the two really good reasons that meditation and mindfulness practices can help. One is just that we have more time. So oftentimes people say, oh, I'd like to have a meditation practice, or I'd like to have a yoga practice, or, um, but I don't really have time. I'm too busy. As soon as I get up in the morning, you know, I'm getting ready for work, and then I leave. And, um, but paradoxically, you know, if you do kind of make that time for meditation or mindfulness, one of the many, many, many side benefits or benefits of this kind of practice is you become more efficient and you become more focused and your mind becomes sharper. And uh, so actually you gain time by devoting 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to meditation in the morning. And so, but anyway, so with the pandemic, we don't really have that excuse. And so, you know, a lot of us have a lot more time right now. So it's a really good time to 
begin a daily practice, meditation or yoga, <clears throat> mindfulness. And uh, But then on the other side, like you're saying, um, mindfulness and meditation, yoga, all these practices uh, have been scientifically shown to really reduce our stress, to help us deal with difficult emotions, to help us work through problems and issues that, you know, we're facing psychologically, mentally. And, um, you know, people who meditate regularly, they report greater feelings of well-being. And this is just kind of a natural result of doing the practices. And so, um, so yeah, when we're in a time of stress, it's the most important time to kind of get quiet and to just kind of like be with yourself a little bit. And um, one uh, Buddhist meditation teacher who I really love, Pema Chodron, you know, she says that when we're practicing meditation and mindfulness, we're, we're kind of like cultivating a sort of friendliness with ourselves, you know, that we, we approach what comes up inside, whether it be, you know, anxiety or fear or whatever emotion might come up, you know, we just practice being with that, you know, and just letting it be there without bringing in judgment and you know, self-criticism and all that kind of stuff. And it, it creates a kind of friendliness with the self. And so, Anyway, when, when we're dealing with some kind of, uh, you know, powerful or difficult emotion like stress and anxiety, that uh, it's really good in that way. But it's also really good just because as you practice meditation, your breathing slows down, your body slows down, you know, and everything just uh, actually works so that the stress is relieved during that time. So it's just a great practice. We could talk a long time about working with uh, emotions and working with stress and anxiety uh, kind of consciously while you're doing meditation, but also it's just a natural byproduct of, of breathing slowly, focusing the brain, focusing the mind on your breath, on the present moment. So it's kind of, it's a little bit miraculous, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, when I started practicing <clears throat> yoga and meditation in the late 1970s, you know, it's like very few people knew really what it was or what it was all about. And today it's everywhere. And, you know, I just think it's so wonderful. It's not a kind of fad because, like, it really works. It really heals people. It really makes people healthier, happier, more efficient, you know, um, and just just um, more in touch with themselves. And people have richer lives. And so it's not kind of like, you know, the aerobics class craze that's going to come and go. I really do think it's uh, it's something here to stay. Plus, it's been around for like 3,000 years already, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly. I want to get into a little of the history as well as we go along here. Um, so you mentioned, you pointed out, uh, and I think a lot of us are, are very aware that we got more time with ourselves, uh, perhaps, during, during these times. And that, um, you know, if you're a person who's not all that comfortable with yourself that that maybe is not a great thing and uh yeah. and, and so a person like that might fear mindfulness and meditation i you, you know you you say i'm going to get to know myself going to get comfortable with myself i don't know if that's mm -hmm. possible i wonder what you say to that right sounds a little scary doesn't yeah. it yeah as a matter of fact on um on thursdays i started a uh hour-long drop-in guided meditation and yoga philosophy hour at Thursdays at noon, and uh, so like the first, uh, the first theme each week has a kind of theme, and the first theme was kind of like um, how doing nothing accomplishes everything, and so it's kind of like the theme is like as we go inward, 
um, we start to discover who we really are, and then out of that understanding comes true work. You know, there's an actor, Zoe Caldwell, who says, you know, when she's talking to students, she says, you know, what your job is is to find the work that makes you well. And so it's kind of like I was a lawyer for 10 years, and I was not really very happy as a lawyer. I was busy. I was, you know, being a good lawyer and everything. And, and then through, like, meditation and mindfulness practices, you know, I went deep inside, and I realized, you know what? I don't really want to be a lawyer. I've never wanted to be a lawyer, you know? And so so I made a change, you know, and I became a professor, and I'm, like, so much happier. Poorer, but happier. But um, so, you know, there can be that kind of resistance, like, one of the things that I like to talk about is um, in the Buddhist Eightfold Path, one of the um, limbs of the Eightfold Path is right effort. And I, I like to ask the question, you know, what is the nature of the effort to sit and do nothing? You know, it's quite an interesting question because we do kind of resist it. We want to be like doing busy work, you know, and and yet we can fill our life up with busy work. But if that work isn't coming out of, you know, who we truly are, um, then it's just busy work. You know, we're busy, but what does it really mean? Um, there's a theologian I really love um, named uh, Frederick Bruckner, and he says, this is a, a theistic, a, you know, a religious perspective on it, but he says, the place uh, God calls you to is the place where your own <clears throat> deep gladness and the world's great hunger meet. The place where God calls you is the place where your own deep gladness and the world's great hunger meet. And so, like, we might have some resistance to getting quiet. We might have some resistance to, like, saying, well, who am I? You know, this is, could be a little bit scary. Um, but, you know... It, when we find out who we are, we find out what we truly love, and then our life becomes an expression of that love. And so this is kind of all we're doing in meditation. And, you know, it may seem scary, it may seem like a little intimidating, but the practice is very simple. You know, you, you uh, sit and you uh, pay attention to the breath, you pay attention to just being in the present moment. A lot of times with students, you know, I um, when I teach history and philosophy of yoga, I, I bring in some grapes or something, and we just practice mindful eating, you know, where we, we like eat this grape or this piece of orange with full attention without like watching TV or reading or having a conversation. And, you know, and it just becomes so wonderful. It's just like the, the experience of just eating a grape becomes like really wonderful because our attention is in the present moment. See, meditation and mindfulness is very much about just being in the present moment. And if you think about it, you know, the past is already gone, right? The past, we have records and recordings and everything, but the past itself is gone. The future is not here yet. So, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but all we really ever have is this present moment. And so meditation and mindfulness is just a practice of being in the present moment. Oftentimes, like a sports athletes, Michael Jordan or someone, you know, they had this fantastic game, and he says, I was just in the zone. You know, and when we do something like that, like whether it be sports or playing a musical instrument, we have these moments where it's almost like we're not even doing it. It's just happening. And so it's kind of like we get our out of our own way. 
And uh, so meditation and mindfulness is just kind of a practice of learning to live in the zone all the time. That's mm-hmm. kind of the goal. If you just joined us, we're talking with Michael Souter, who's a uh, poet, uh, English professor, and uh, teaches uh, history of uh, yoga. Uh, also, uh, as you've uh, been hearing, uh, practices mindfulness and meditation. That's what we're talking about on the program uh, today. Um, so before we go to our first break, Michael Sauter, I want to get in uh, this question, which came in by email. By the way, you can uh, get a question in for uh, Michael Sauter as well on mindfulness and meditation. Upraxcess at gmail.com is the email. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us to 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Here's what Julianne says. I have a question for Michael Souter for tomorrow's program. She got this in yesterday, well ahead of the program. Uh, currently, I'm volunteering for the Cache Valley Suicide Prevention Coalition. I've also come to many of Michael's wonderful Sangha meetings. I have really tried to incorporate meditation into my daily routine, and it has helped my mental health greatly. What would you say to someone struggling with suicidality right now? And how would you explain why meditation is good for the soul? That's a question from Julianne. Thank you for that. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Julianne. Um, I appreciate you writing in. It's a great question. Um, you know, I'm a little, uh, I guess I should preface it by saying that uh, in seeing people begin to practice meditation and mindfulness with so many different kinds of uh, emotional, mental, life situation uh, issues, tragedies, struggles. I, I've seen so many people healed. I mean, I've seen so many people um, just blossom. You know, one of my best friends came to our, med- our Wednesday night meditation group. Uh, when he first started, you know, he was just in so much pain, both physical and emotional pain. He'd lost a child who was only six months old, and, and he just, you know, just contorted in pain. He'd ruined his back as a forklift driver. And, you know, over the course of a year or so, you know, this this person just blossomed and just became the most one of the finest people I've ever known. And he became a meditation teacher himself. And you know, I've seen so many people uh, healed in so many ways by doing these practices. And so, um, so you know, the first thing I would want to say is, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a mental health professional, and so. I, I would feel a little bit hesitant to, like, give any specific advice um, other than just, you know, to encourage uh, everyone, you know, who's suffering in any way that they're suffering to start these practices, because they really do heal. They really do benefit you. If you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideations, I think it's important to see a professional, you know, and to to uh, medicine uh, can be an important part of that and therapy and I'm not really competent to intervene in that kind of way, but but everybody, even someone who's suffering from suicidal depression or, or anxiety, absolutely can benefit from <clears throat> beginning these practices, and I think that it's part of a healing strategy for sure, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, th- thank you for that, uh, that question, Julianne. Um, and before we go to break, uh, if, uh, you know, if you... Uh, if you have suicidal thoughts or anybody you know, uh, here's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255, or suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Um, so, uh, Thank you. 
let's let's um, let's do a break. When we come back, maybe you could uh, take us through a basic meditation, Michael Sauter. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I always fear on the radio that if they're long uh, periods of silence, but uh, yeah. maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll you do could... a guided meditation. So oh, I'm okay. talking most of the time. Uh, all right, yeah. great, great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we're talking with uh, Michael Souter. Uh, he's talking about mindfulness and meditation, which may be of special interest during these times of pandemic. Uh, Michael Souter is a poet, professor of English at Utah State University, and affiliated faculty member in religious studies and yoga studies programs, where he teaches courses in the history of, and philosophy of yoga. He's also the founder of the nonprofit organization Amrita Yoga Satsang. Uh, he's uh, trained as a yoga and meditation teacher, teaches yoga and meditation, their history and philosophy, at studios, retreats, and yoga teacher training programs. You can get to your question to Michael Sauter through email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, um, or by our toll-free number, 800-826-1495. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas in action, online at utahhumanities.org. Support also comes from USU's Master of Second Language Teaching program, accepting applications throughout the year and offering evening classes to part- and full-time graduate students. Funding available on a competitive basis. For more information, visit mslt.usu.edu. COVID-19 has changed daily life in the U.S., and with news breaking by the hour, it can be hard to stay up to date. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us every weekday for a new live conversation about the disease, what you need to know, what's coming next, and we'll answer your questions. The National Conversation with All Things Considered, live every weekday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 Pacific, from NPR News. That's 7 p.m. our time, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. During these times of pandemic, we are talking about mindfulness and meditation. And our guide today is Michael Souter. He is USU professor of English and affiliated professor of religious studies. Uh, he uh, teaches uh, courses in history and philosophy of yoga. He's founder of the nonprofit organization Amrita Yoga Satsang. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, uh, Amrita, but yeah, that's very close. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, tell us briefly about that, the, this organization. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. Uh, I got involved in meditation back in the 1970s, late 70s, like I said, and and uh, I got involved with a group that had a weekly meditation group. And uh, what you know, uh, this whole path, the spiritual path, is full of paradoxes. And one of the great paradoxes is that even though meditation is kind of a solitary, inward activity, it gets better if you do it with other people. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny paradox. But anyway, so uh, you know, when I was in college. I attended a weekly meditation group that I just, it was life-changing for me. And so when I moved to uh, Cache Valley, I uh, was very involved in the Monday night uh, Cache Valley Buddhist Sangha, which is a meditation group. And uh, and I, I practiced there for several years. I, I practiced as a Buddhist for about 10 years overall. And uh, But anyway, I, I, I just wanted something that uh, was a little bit more yoga-oriented. And so I started this yoga meditation um, group or organization called Amrita Yoga Sangha. So it's been going for about five or six years on Wednesday evenings. At the uh, we, we gather at the Unitarian Church, although right now we're gathering on Zoom. Yeah, yeah. how's that? Is it is it as effective on Zoom? It's it's actually super awesome because uh, 
you know, I have friends around the country that are always saying, oh, I wish I could be there and attend the meditation group. And now they can, you know, so it's like just great. I have these two dear friends in New Jersey that uh, come every week. And so in, in some sense, it's just really awesome. I think even once we start meeting again in person, we're going to uh, have a kind of Zoom element to it so people can join in from other places. I actually like the Zoom meetings, you know, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying them quite a lot. Mm. Well, uh, uh, we we teased ahead of the break that you're going to guide us through a meditation. Let's do that now. Okay. Okay, I would love to. So uh, do you have a sense of how long you would like it to be? Uh, what like are, 10 minutes or something? Uh, uh, 10 minutes is probably a little long. Okay. That sounds good. All right. So, all right. So if you're driving, you want to keep your eyes open. Uh, otherwise, you probably want to close your eyes. Very important to sit up straight. So you want to have your back erect and uh, because that keeps you alert. So I often like to say that a person practicing meditation is kind of like, you know, a cat sitting in a window. The cat is perfectly still, but wide awake. And so meditation is not about going to sleep or getting sleepy. It's you're wide awake as you do it. So you want to have your back straight, and then you want to take some nice, long, slow, deep breaths. Now, I always like to start with what's called a yogic breath. And when you do this, you begin your inhalation, by pushing your belly out. We often walk around holding our belly in all the time, right? But just push your belly out, fill the bottom of your lungs, and then expand your rib cage, and then fill the top of your lungs. And then as you exhale, release the top of your lungs, let your rib cage fall together, and then pull your belly all the way into the spine. And this releases all the stale air from your lungs. And then when you inhale, pushing your belly out again, just gently, filling the bottom of the lungs, and then the ribs, and then the upper lungs, and then reversing that process, relaxing the upper lungs, letting the ribs fall inward, and pulling the belly gently in toward the spine. So this is also called diaphragmatic breathing. It uses the full capacity of the lungs. So this oxygen that we're breathing in is filling every cell in our body bringing new life, new regeneration, renovation to everything in our body. So the breath is key to practicing meditation. The breath is always happening right now. Not happening in the past, not happening in the future. So it becomes a really effective anchor to staying in the present moment. Let's just try a couple of these nice, long, slow, deep breaths. It's good when we practice meditation. You can just have a kind of attitude that there's nowhere you need to go. There's nothing you need to do. There's no one you need to be. So in this short period, you can just be present. All the problems, all the worries will all be there when we finish. But for right now, we're just letting all that go. And we're just staying in this simple presence, this simple awareness. 
mind will wander off into thinking. And when you notice that you've wandered off, just gently, without any judgment, just come back to the breath. Just come back to this present moment. And then just see if you can be aware of your own simple presence. Just your own sense of I am. Without any labels or definitions, just a kind of felt sense of your own presence. You may just feel that in your body. You may feel it in the breath. Sometimes some feeling or emotion may arise and you can just Notice that feeling. And when you're ready, with an exhalation, you can just let the feeling go. Same can be true with physical sensations. You might feel some tension in your body. Maybe the back of your neck, around your eyes. Just with the sense of present awareness, with an exhalation, just let the tension go. Coming back to the breath. not trying to make anything happen, just being present with this deep sense of awareness, just this deep sense of presence. Which is always already there. mind will wander off into thinking about the future, worrying, planning, thinking about the past, regretting, 
Maybe the mind is getting lost in fantasy. And just whenever you notice the mind has wandered, you just gently, without judgment, just come back to this moment where life is actually happening. Over time, the mind will quiet down. With practice, the mind will quiet. Often said that the mind is like a pond or pool of water disturbed by the wind. And with the chattering mind, we cannot see very deep. But with meditation and with practice, then the wind calms down. And then we see we can peer into the depths of our own being. And there we find the reservoir of wisdom, insight, creativity, compassion, love. Let's bring our awareness back to our breath, back to our bodies. You might wiggle your fingers and toes, maybe stretch your arms. When you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back into the external part of this present moment. So that's just a very short, simple uh, meditation. There are all sorts of very elaborate meditations that use mantras and visualizations and chanting, and it's a whole world of uh, wealth of practices. But the very simple meditation is often, the very simplest kind of meditation is often really the best. Hmm. Well, thank you for, for taking us through that. Mm-hmm. Um. So, if a person may be just getting started, where where are some starting points? Uh, in pl- uh, places yeah, to go, sure. uh, yeah, you know, sure. way to get information. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, obviously, uh, you know, the Wednesday night uh, yoga meditation group um, is meets uh, on Zoom, and anybody interested could, I guess, maybe send an email into you or, or to me. 
So my email is Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot Souder, S-O-W-D-E-R at U-S-U dot E-D-U. And um, I can send information about the different meditation groups in the Valley. Um, And so that's one way to do it. Uh, And then also I have my Thursday uh, noon uh, philosophy and meditation hour. Then, you know, I'm a great reader. I love reading. My favorite kind of book is like books about meditation and yoga philosophy and things like that. And so there are wonderful books I could recommend. A really great book is by a Buddhist uh, meditation teacher, Vipassana teacher named Jack Kornfield called A Path with Heart, a super great book. Any books by Pema Chodron are also really fantastic introductions to uh, meditation as well. Um, there's a really great book called Everyday Zen by a woman named Charlotte Yoko Beck, which is a really fantastic book as well. Um, there are a million podcasts out. So um, there's uh, Jennifer um, Seiner and I, we do these courses through a platform called Yogic Studies, where you can study about philosophy of yoga, and they're just starting the podcast. There's lots of podcasts out there. And then, of course, you know, there's all these new apps and things, uh, mindfulness practice apps. There's one called, um, what's it called? Headspace? Head something? I can't remember. I haven't really been using them, but but I know about them. Um, you can you know, do a Google search of, of meditation apps, and there's a ton of them out there. So, And they're really helpful to people. You can just tune in, and they give you meditations. I think um, the one Headspace, I can't remember the name, um, you know, it has a lot of free meditations, and then if you want to go deeper, you can uh, pay a little monthly fee or something like that. But anyway, you can learn meditation from books. But, you know, meditation is very simple. There's nothing complicated about it. It's not easy, right, because we resist it. We talked about that. But it's very simple. All you got to do is sit and pay attention to your breath, and you're doing meditation, you know. So uh, even though there's books and apps and podcasts and everything else, and you can go really deep into the history and philosophy and all that, it's fantastic. I love it all. But meditation is super simple. It's just sitting you know, it's just sitting and just being with your breath, and that's all you really have to do. The mind wanders away, and you gently come back. I, I kind of feel like the whole practice of um, mindfulness and meditation, it's a practice in coming back. It's a practice in starting again, you know, just beginning again, uh, and both in our meditation and then during the day. You know, we sit again and practice again. So, um, the Sufis, you know, which is the mystical wing of Islam, their word for prayer is dhikr, which means to remember, you know. And so the very word for prayer for Sufis is remembering. And I, kind of, I think about that a lot, that it's like we, we sit in meditation in the morning and we feel peaceful, we feel blissful, full of love, you know. And then we go out into the world and you go into your first meeting and like anger and resentment, everything rises up. And so, you know, you just have to remember, you know, take a breath and just remember, you know, to be present. So, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, headspace.com is, uh, is, I think, the website you're referring to. Yes. Um, so uh, before we go to another break, um, mindfulness and meditation, I, I guess it, it could be associated with some religious practices or not. Mm-hmm. Is, uh-huh. is this compatible with uh, religious practices, religious beliefs? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, very interesting um, you know, we don't really know exactly where meditation came from. Some people think, you know, it probably came from people sitting at the beach and watching the surf, or 
sitting around a campfire and just watching the fire, watching a river, and, you know, just noticing how good that feels and thinking, well, maybe I could, like, watch the breath the way I watch the surf, and I would feel kind of like I'm at the beach, you know? And so we don't really know, but um, but most of the... So what I like to say is that, you know, yoga and meditation, they uh, heal us physically, uh, they heal us mentally, they heal us emotionally, and they also, if you have a spiritual practice or you're interested in a religious, uh, if you have a religious life, uh, it very much um, can uh, cultivate that religious sense as well. Pretty much all the religious traditions have a meditation kind of uh, tradition within them. So Taoism does, uh, you know, yoga does, Hinduism has meditation, Buddhism obviously has meditation. But there's also this huge tradition of uh, Western Christian mysticism. You know, I was raised Catholic, and I had 12 years of Catholic education, and I never heard one word about meditation or contemplation. And after I discovered yoga and became a yogi, I started reading books of Christian mysticism, and I found that's what all those monks and nuns are doing in the monasteries. They're meditating, you know, and I had never known that. And so that was like a real revelation to me. And I mentioned the Sufis, you know, kind of the contemplative wing of Islam. And then in Judaism, the Hasidic tradition is uh, a mystical meditation tradition as well as the Kabbalah. So it's like, uh, you know, all these great religious traditions have meditation as one one path. It's not, you know, the only way um, in religious traditions, but it is, you know, every, it's kind of like, you know, like on the surface, all the religions are so different in terms of dogma and ritual and all that. But when you talk to anybody from any religion about the inner life of prayer and meditation, they talk in very similar terms. So I just think that's interesting. Hmm. If you just join us, we're talking with Michael Souter. He is uh, guiding us through an exploration of mindfulness and meditation, which may be of special interest during these times of pandemic. He's a poet and professor of English at Utah State University and an affiliated faculty member in the Religious Studies and Yoga Studies uh, programs. We'll come back with our, our last segment uh, following another break. And Michael Souter, I want to talk a little bit about uh, someone you uh, pointed out to me, had not been familiar with him, uh, a very interesting story, and that's Dan Harris, who you see on Nightline and, and Good Morning America, uh, who, uh, mm-hmm. after an on-air panic attack, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. f- found meditation. And he has a couple of quotes that I want to run past you, which uh, bring awesome. some interesting uh, aspects of mindfulness and meditation. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes in part from our members and Cafe Ibis. The Gallery Deli is currently closed. Ibis Coffee Beans available at cafeibis.com. Pick up at the roasting plant or delivery. Also available at local grocers and cashvalleyrestaurantdelivery.com. This week on Radio Lab. Very funny. What a funny idea. Mr. Google thought that right in front of the homes, they should build <laughs> a bus stop. A bus stop. To nowhere. There's no bus coming. No bus? Never. The story of how one nursing home used a bench and a lie to save their patients. I'm Jad Abumran. Join me. That's coming up next hour at 10 o'clock on UPR. Hi, this is David Green. At NPR, our mission is to create a more informed public. Special coverage of this important moment in history is made possible by listener support. And we hope you'll make a pledge of support online at upr.org. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about mindfulness and meditation with Michael Souter, who is a poet and professor of English at Utah State University. He's an affiliated faculty member in the Religious Studies and Yoga Studies programs, teaches courses in the history and philosophy of yoga. He's a founder of a nonprofit organization and is trained as a yoga and meditation teacher. And we're talking about mindfulness and meditation on the program today. Uh, so, Michael Sauter, you uh, pointed out a, an interesting book um, by Dan Harris. Dan Harris is a correspondent for ABC News. He's co-anchor for the weekend edition of Good Morning America, and uh, before that was anchor of the Sunday edition of World News. Contributes stories to such uh, shows as Nightline 2020, World News with Dan Sauter, and Good Morning America. Uh, one of his books is titled 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. A true story. So part of this is a biographical. And uh, so after reporting in, uh, you know, war-torn areas, he came home and he says he was, he was trying to uh, replicate the adrenaline high. He got into drugs and that led to... Uh, a lot of different things, uh, uh, none of them good, and he culminated with an on-air uh, panic attack, which must have been <laughs> embarrassing and humiliating. Yeah. Uh, then he went looking for help, and uh, what he found was mindfulness and uh, and meditation. Um, so one of the one of the things he says that, that kind of it occurred to me as well. Um, of course, to be a to be a TV uh, newsman, you you have to have a certain aggressiveness, right, and, and ambition mm-hmm. and drive, which he certainly does. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his book, he says he recounts how he resolved this apparent conflict between meditation-induced equanimity and the aggressive competitiveness, competitiveness as he uh, as terms it required for a success as a TV news journalist. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. It, it, the two don't seem to uh, go together. Uh, that's a super awesome question, yeah, and it's something that I think about a lot and, and actually struggle with some um, but uh, so I guess I'd start by saying that in this Thursday uh, noon um, hour, philosophy hour that I'm doing, you know, I started with this idea that uh, by doing nothing, everything is accomplished. And, and, you know, I just, you know, can point to my own experience that when I was a lawyer, you know, I was successful as a lawyer and it was a life full of that aggression and competitiveness and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but, you know, I'm not saying, like, I'm the greatest professor in the world or whatever teacher, but I'm so much more effective as a teacher and professor because I found what I truly love, you know, and I found that through mindfulness and meditation practice. And and so, um, you know, there's a really great writer named Krishnamurti, Indian writer, and he says that, and it's paradoxical. I love all the paradoxes, but, but he says, you know, when you're really uh, practicing in the present moment, that you get in touch with this deeper uh, wisdom, uh, which is not really verbal. You get in touch with this deeper sense of insight. And Krishnamurti says, he says, then action becomes spontaneous. You know, that you, you, can, you will become a natural leader because you will be acting from this authentic place inside of you. And so it's like you don't really have to worry about what your neighbor's doing or, you know, what your coworker's doing, because you're acting from this inner authenticity, and that's where you're going to be most effective. And so, you know, like, um, like I'm a writer, right, and a, a poet, and, and so part of the work of being a writer and poet is to, like, get my name out there, you know, so I have to, you know, send work out, and that feels like drudgery, and you know, but it is part of the work that you have to do. But, but I, I just really feel like that... Uh, 
there's not really a conflict because the the you know the aggression and the competitiveness may not really be necessary you know what may really we may really be called to is acting out of our authentic self and that may be the most effective action we can take and so it's 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 an interesting paradox it's kind of like you know you often hear about scientists. They're working on a problem and working on the math, and, you know, they can't, like Einstein would talk about this, can't figure it out, can't figure it out, and then, like, he takes a nap or he takes a shower, and suddenly, boom, there's the answer, you know, because it's kind of like when we get quiet, we can allow this deeper part of ourself, which is wiser than this competitive, chattering brain, um, and out of that deeper self, our action becomes more powerful, more meaningful, uh, more effective in the world. And, you know, I just know from my own experience, you know, I'm a better teacher and poet than I was as a lawyer, and I made a lot of money as a lawyer. So, you know, it's just, uh, I just really believe that by getting quiet, going inward, you get in touch with your true uh, inner self, and there's tremendous power in that. So it seems like a paradox. It is a paradox. I love the paradoxes. Mm. So, but I don't see it as a conflict. I see it as a kind of paradox. We just have only about a minute left for this. I wanted to read this quote from Dan Harris. Uh, he, he, he touts the benefits that he has seen from mindfulness and meditation and uh, ends with this. He says, I created a different relationship to the voice in my head. You know the voice I'm talking about. It's what has us reaching into the fridge when we're not hungry, checking our email when we're in conversation with other people, losing our temper only to regret it later, the ability to see what's going on in your head at any given moment without reacting to it blindly, often called mindfulness, is a superpower, he says. He goes on to say, I'm certainly not arguing meditation is a panacea. I still do tons of stupid stuff, as my wife will attest, <laughs> but practice has definitely made me happier, calmer, and nicer. So this create a different relationship with the voice in, in your head. I wonder if you just, mm-hmm. just about a minute on that. Yeah, that's really awesome. So, you know, this chattering voice in our brain, uh, you know, is, is a voice that we've picked up through our life from critical parents or, you know, critical teachers or you know, maybe praising teachers, but we have this chattering voice in our head, and through mindfulness practice, you realize that that's not exactly your deepest self, you know, that you can observe this chattering mind that won't stop chattering. It's kind of like if you're working out in the gym and your biceps are tired, you rest them, right? So your mind gets tired of thinking it doesn't ever stop until you practice meditation. You know, so this chattering brain, we used to think that's who we are, but through mindfulness and meditation, we can just observe that, and we don't have to be ruled by it. It's a kind of tyrant, and it's nice to take a rest from that voice. Mm. Well, just we're at the end of a conversation. Anything else you'd like to say briefly about mindfulness and meditation? Well, I would just like to send a word out of thanks to uh, you know my teachers. Uh, I actually have a meditation guru, but I'd like to thank Jennifer Seiner, my wife, and uh, Chantel Gerfen, who owns Transcend Yoga Studio, Emily Perry, who's one of my yoga teachers, and I just feel very grateful to have these practices, and um, you know, and I love to share them. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we loved having you on. Um, so Michael.Souter at USU.edu is a place that people can reach you. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, Michael.Souter at USU.edu. Yeah, yes. Anybody can reach me. I'm just happy to talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> all right. Very good. Well, we, we appreciate it a lot. Uh, Michael Souter is a poet, professor of English at Utah State University, and affiliated faculty member in religious studies and yoga studies uh, programs. 
Um, and uh, you, you can also go to his website, uh, michaelsouter.org, as well. Uh, yes, to, I also want to thank uh, Robbie Gupta, the chair of Religious Studies, who I love dearly. <laughs> thank you, Robbie. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Okay. Uh, a shout out to Ravi Gupta. Um, tomorrow, we'll be talking uh, with Libby Copeland. She's author most recently of The Lost Family, her latest book. In that book, she investigates what happens when we embark on a vast social experiment with little understanding of the ramifications. She explores the culture of genealogy buffs, science of DNA, the business of companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, all while tracing the story of one woman, her unusual results, and a relentless methodical drive for answers that becomes a thoroughly modern genetic detective story. Libby Copeland, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. That's tomorrow's program. Thank you for listening today. You may have heard Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society are presenting the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. This art contest is celebrating that beauty. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for you to download. For all of the details, go to upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Ridgefield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. My name is Larry Cannon. I have listened to Utah Public Radio since its inception. Our lives are richer for what Utah Public Radio brings into them. 